Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, Medical Grand Rounds, uh, continuing medical education uh, meeting of the Department of Medicine. Uh, and welcome to our friends connecting uh, to us by detail. Uh, we have uh, the delight of having Lionel Lewis uh, present today. Uh, Lionel is uh, a wonderful colleague for many years. He was a graduate of Trinity College in Cambridge. Uh, he amassed many of the letters that you see at the University of Wales College of Medicine, uh, did a residency at the University of Wales in Cardiff, South Wales, became a lecturer in clinical pharmacology at Guy's Hospital uh, in London, uh, did a fellowship in clinical pharmacology at Johns Hopkins, so he's touched all the high points around the, around the world, and came here to reach the pinnacle uh, in 1993, and has uh, rapidly uh, expanded, at that time, rapidly expanded the capacity of our unique and wondrous uh, section of clinical pharmacology. Uh, and uh, he became a professor and for many years has been the medical director of the clinical trials office. Um, his interests are in clinical pharmacology of anti-cancer and anti-HIV drugs and phase one investigations of uh, novel anti-cancer uh, agents. Um, he's a teacher at all levels of undergraduate, graduate, and continuing medical education, uh, well-respected, uh, sometimes feared um, <laughs> for his quick wit and uh, reposts, but um, uh, he's, uh, he's really been a wonderful colleague for all of us. He's published over 130 peer-reviewed uh, articles, many chapters, uh, uh, and uh, works on many study sections. Um, he does have some industry uh, and um, uh, government uh, uh, financial relationships, but none of them uh, have any bearing on this uh, presentation. So give a warm welcome to uh, a real gem of a human being, Lionel Lewis. Thank you, John. Thank you. So thank you for that uh, ex exceptionally uh, prestigious uh, introduction, which I'm sure I don't deserve. Um, ju just to clarify, because we're in CME, I just wanted to make sure that you do know exactly what my conflicts of interest are. So I do get research support from NCI and CATS. Um, I get a number of uh, research study support from different pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I also consult to the NCI. Uh, NIAs and CATS, and my wife says the closest I'll ever get to the military is being on a study section for the Department of Defense. And then probably the biggest conflict I've got is that I'm employed by Dartmouth College and I work with Dave Nuremberg. Um, and I think Dave will agree that I guess over the years it's been a, a relationship that's sort of uh, grown and uh, prospered and we both enjoy each other's company a great deal and often have raging arguments about drugs, which is good. So those are my conflicts of interest and perceived conflicts of interest. I can tell you that I'm not going to talk about any of the particular drugs that I study and I'm not particularly going to talk about anything that's um, <clears throat> currently not FDA approved. 
Okay, so I thought I'd be a little bit confrontational or rather controversial and perhaps a bit of both and say, you know, they asked me for my objectives. So I thought, oh, objectives, what do you do with objectives? So my original thought was this is what I do. They're the statements that I make just before I do a presentation, before you give MGR to allow it to have CME. But you see, the problem is, as a Celt, the Celts have a tradition of storytelling. So rather than defining objectives, what I thought I'd do is I'd give you the outline of the story that I want to tell you today. So this is what I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about an old drug. And I want to briefly review the pharmacology of the old drug. Then we're going to do a case of what the old drug does to human beings and deal with some toxicities, and also with some relatively novel ways of thinking about abrogating them. Then we'll move into a second case using the same drug. So the theme is the drug, and if you've got your, your sheet in front of you, you'll know that I'm talking about methotrexate. So we're going to do a couple of cases talking about methotrexate toxicity and how to work with it or work through it. And then I thought I wanted to think a bit about we're all um, invested institutionally in population health, and we're all thinking about the role of the institution in population health. But you know, the more I think about this, the more I see myself where when I'm in the office or if I'm at the bedside, the patient sitting next to me or in the bed isn't really interested about the population. They're interested about themselves. And therefore, we should be thinking about both ends of the spectrum. We should be thinking about population health at one end, but as importantly, we should be thinking about individualization of the health of the individual patient that we're dealing with. So I wanted to talk a little bit about individual therapeutics, a little bit of genotyping, where it's going, and pharmacogenetics. So, and then we'll wrap it up, and hopefully we'll have some questions and some fun. So we're going to talk about methotrexate. Methotrexate was synthesized in roughly 1940. And it was really synthesized as a folate analog. You can see the structure for the chemists amongst us up here. This is for the folate. Here's methotrexate. It's actually uh, an amino methyl uh, terulic acid. And the rationale for its synthesis and development was really some observations made in, in Boston that leukemic cells ex vivo were actually increased their proliferative rate when they were fed folic acid. And the sort of under underpinning uh, theme and hypotheses around their development was to try to produce analogues of folic acid that would compromise that leukemic cell proliferation. And this was undertaken by Faber and his colleagues and some chemical uh, medicinal chemists down in, down in Boston. The drug itself was first used in 1948, and it was used in the first treat chemotherapeutic treatments for acute leukemia, and has subsequently maintained its status as one of the most important drugs in treating this disease successfully. Uh, it's, obviously, it has expanded its indications to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, osteosarcoma, and choriocarcinoma, are perhaps the preeminent ones, but it's also used in some solid tumors, but not necessarily first line. Our friends in the rheumatology section and in the dermatology section will know that it's still used in, in rheumatoid arthritis in relatively low oral doses. And it's also uh, used as an abortifact in early, early pregnancy for chemical abortion. So it's a, a drug that's been used for years. It's around. We use it. It's, it's potentially very toxic. Um, but I want to focus a little bit on its pharmacology and just revisit it with you, just as a reminder. If we give an intravenous dose, roughly 80 to 90% of the drug is excreted as the parent compound in the urine. About 10% goes through the bile. And many of you will be familiar 
I'm sure, over your careers, of the sort of toxicities that are produced. We see significant problems with rapidly proliferating tissues. We see GI issues around mucositis, uh, diarrhea, uh, loss of uh, bowel epithelium. In conjunction with that, it'll affect the bone marrow and cause uh, hematopoietic suppression. There is a clear renal toxicity that produces an acute tubular problem. We remember well the transaminitis and the fibrosis that can occur in the liver. And for our friends in pulmonology, knowing that Rick is sitting on the right-hand side here, we can also get an interstitial pneumonitis that's related to news. So this drug is pretty toxic for, for certain tissues. But what I wanted to also think about is, what is it doing at the cellular level? So this is, a, this is the, if you like, the, the cascade of uh, folic acid biosynthesis that relates into pyrimidine synthesis and DNA, also relates into purine synthesis. But the key is this enzyme dihydrofolate reductase in the one carbon cycle. And mesotrexate itself is an inhibitor of DFR. But in addition to the drug itself being an inhibitor, and the inhibition is competitive and irreversible. So, and I think that's important. It's irreversible. Once it sticks on there, this stuff does not come off that enzyme. And the other part is that there's methotrexate intracellularly is glutamylated. And these glutamylated enzymes, uh, sorry, compounds, are also potent inhibitors of DHFR. The, the, the intracellular glutamates are also inhibiting thymidylate synthase and also enzymes involved in purine synthesis. So all in all, this is a pretty potent inhibitor of uh, uh, biosynthetic precursors in the cell. But that's at the target in the cell. We mustn't forget the fact that it's got to get there. So here we have a diagram that gives you an indication of if you have methotrexate in the blood, there are a number of transporters that occur if it's given, uh, going through the gut. These are uh, ABC transporters or SLC transporters. And these transporters either bring it into the cells and subsequently efflux it into the urine or in the liver and subsequently into the bile. And just remember this, this is the new nomenclature for the organic and transporters called solid uh, carriers. They're called SLCs. There's about 300 of them now in about 50 families. But these SLC proteins that are on the cell membrane are very important at driving mesotrexate into the cells going forward. Okay, enough of a brief review of pharmacology, right? And biochemistry. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of the case. So the first case I want to, sh to discuss with you is a, a gentleman who's 74 years of age. And he originally presented to his um, primary care guy with some backache and back pain. And he ended, eventually got was in a scan with a CT scan that showed a paraspinal mass in the lower thoracic, or adjacent to the thoracic vertebra. Biopsies of said mass uh, on two occasions revealed follicular lymphoma. And because this is an extranodal presentation, he's already stage four. In late 2014, he was treated with a combination of bendamustine and rituximab. Uh, this is a, a mustard analog, and this is an anti-CD40 antibody, um, anti-CD20 antibody, sorry. And he tolerated those two cycles very well. Because of the par paraspinal mass, it was decided that he should also undergo some mesotrexate prophylaxis because of the risk of CNS propagation of his tumor. 
In his history, really he had an MI, distant. He had some problems with cholesterol. He was a little bit overweight, probably wasn't Welsh, but you never know. And his drug therapy, a beta blocker, a low-dose aspirin, he was on resuvastatin, and he was also on some citalopram. So the gentleman comes into the, our institution to have this high-dose methotrexate for CNS prophylaxis. When uh, he comes into the institution, the sort of physical exam is pretty, pretty uh, benign. There's nothing really major pro problematic. So vital signs are stable. He's not pyroxial. I think the thing of note is that actually he could play rugby for the Welsh front row because he's about the right size. Um, he's weighing in at somewhere in the region of what's that? About 200 and I don't know, 286 pounds, 87 pounds, something like that. William is good at that sort of number. Um, so he could actually play rugby for us, but I'm not too sure he would because because he's a little bit old. Um, really nothing else to find. Laboratory baseline evaluation really didn't show us any hematological function was good. Liver function was normal. And I just point out that his transaminases and his albumin was normal. And his kidney function, importantly, was also good. Remember here, though, that even with a creatinine of 1.01, which is, it sounds pretty good, remember those different equations that the boys from the Beam team like to make us think about? You know, the MDRD equation. Really and truly, the MDRD equation was never validated in somebody this size. So those estimates may well not be quite on the, on the mark. In fact, if you do the MDRD in this gentleman and you normalize it to his body surface area, his GFR is somewhere like 101, which is not right. Um, not in a 74-year-old. So bottom line, he's got good organ function. He doesn't have any problems. And so he goes and is treated with 3.5 grams of amethotrexate per meter squared, he gets a total dose of 8,785 milligrams given over two hours. They prepped him with fluids, they prepped his urine by giving him some bicarbonate to alkalinize it. Remember the rationale for that is quite simply that methotrexate is a tends to be an acidic molecule, has a pKa of about 3.8, slightly more than aspirin. Aspirin's about 3.6. So if you alkalinize the urine, you iron trap the compound in the, in the tubular fluid and you excrete it more rapidly. You then start folinic acid about 24 hours after the methotrexate, and so he was given the therapy, and on he went, and he seemed okay over the first day or so. So he's thinking, well, where's this going? What's Lewis up to here? So what happens is, and it always happens around late afternoon, early evening, probably Dr. Nuremberg was having a quiet nap in his office at the time, um, as, his, as our, our pharmacologists are prone to do. But we get a call somewhere around 5 o'clock that says, um, you know, we got a patient who received methotrexate, and yes, about 24 hours, his methotrexate plasma concentration was about just below 90, and we followed it during the day, and now it's down to 37 and a half, and we're waiting for the six o'clock episode. And the six o'clock value was 20 micromolar. And you're thinking, oh, what's all these concentrations? What the hell's Lewis up to? So the bottom line is, guys, that <clears throat> what you'd like to see is you'd like to see a methotrexate level around five micromolar at 20 or below, preferably. And by 48 hours, you prefer to be down to one micromolar or below. Otherwise, the risk of toxicity is very high. So the Welsh in me said, hmm, this 38 and now a, a value around 6 p.m. in the evening of 20, that's a little bit high. 
This guy is at major risk of toxicity. And in fact, if you look at the literature, these sort of numbers can have a mortality of somewhere in the order of 10% or so, uh, if you don't appropriately manage them. So the team asked for our, our advice. Um, and at the time we went to see him, he was getting fluids and he was producing good urine output. Uh, his alkalinization was successful. He had a urine pH that was above 8. So he had sort of at least two logs worth of ionization. <laughs> and they'd already tre started treating him with folic acid, folinic acid rather, and that was started about 24 hours post-chemo. Uh, and importantly, they'd gone through his drug list and said, were there any obnoxious little drugs in here that could compromise the ability of our kidneys to uh, excrete the methotrexate? And the answer was they'd done a good job and eradicated all of them. So I think this is where we come into what else can we do? And I think Dave may have talked about this in, in a little bit in one of his presentations a couple of years ago. The key now is we have this new compound available called glucarpidase. It's a recombinant enzyme. It's a recombinant enzyme made from E. coli, and it is a carboxypeptidase that was originally discovered in Pseudomonas. Um, we actually know that it's fairly high molecular weight, and usually this is given as a single dose of 50 units per kilo to uh, reduce methotrexate concentrations. And you're thinking to yourself, well, how does that work? And the answer is quite simply, this is methotrexate. You've got a carboxypeptidase here. All it does is cleave this off at the CONH bond and produces this uh, metabolite, which is amino methylpyrrhotic acid and glutamic acid. And it does this very effectively when concentrations in the blood are above 0.5 micromolar. The KM of the enzyme is somewhere in the region of one micromolar. Anything above that is new. Anything below 0.5, the enzyme just doesn't work so well. But this stuff is incredibly effective. And within 15 minutes of its administration, it has probably cleaved somewhere in the order of 95% of methotrexate in the blood. Remember, it's in the blood. And that's a key issue. So one question I've got for you guys. We went on and we gave the patient uh, the glucarpidase. We have one. We have enough doses for one patient. We had five vials, 50 units per kilo for a gentleman this weight, worked out at something in the region of 6,600 units. We actually had five 1,000-unit uh, vials. So we were able to give him 5,000 units, and we had to get in some additional units to fulfill the dose by the following morning. But being that we're in a cost-conscious environment currently, my thoughts were, well, I just wonder how much of an expense have I incurred by asking us to go this route? So here's a little bit of a multiple choice question for you. Now, this is not at the board's level of multiple choice, but it's sort of in there, okay? So is the cost $25,000? Is it $100,000? Is it $200,000? Is it $350,000? Or is it roughly Dr. Rend Rostin's salary? Hospital charges or Cost. Cost. It says how expensive this is. This is cost. Per vial or per? No, per course. For this gentleman. For this gentleman, okay? And then, of course, having put this slide together, is it the approximately the salary of a Welsh pharmacologist who is about to be fired? So, guys, I don't have the audience response stuff. 
Let's use a simple old Welsh fashion. Hands up for A. Hmm. Okay, a few. So maybe two or three percent. B, anybody go for B? Slightly more, slightly more, maybe six percent. C, oh dear me, 40 percent. D, oh, about five percent. Anybody want to raise their hand for E? <laughs> yes, good old Dr. Remillard. And I'll raise my hand for E, okay? RF. Um, and the real answer is it's about $200,000 for this particular single treatment of the total amount of drug given. Not, a, not an inexpensive drug, but in this situation, well worth the potential to avoid a life-threatening toxicity. Okay, so this is this, my, my, our patient's course. Uh, what I've done here, and I can tell you that EDH is not the most friendly thing to extract data from, particularly when you have information that's in there that's miscellaneous and tracked in and scanned in. So let's go through this. So here's our friend's methotrexate concentration over time over the first two days. This red line here, okay? So we gave him glucarpidase, and this is the first dose we gave him, 5,000, and we gave him actually the next 2,000 the following morning. And we measured the concentration, and it was 6.11 but we measured it using the ELISA assay that doesn't differentiate between parent methotrexate and metabolite. So it picks up the whole thing. So the, the concentration there is spuriously elevated. What we did as well is we actually sent the uh, samples down to Boston and we got them to measure the following uh, track of concentrations using a specific LC mass spec method that specifically picked up the parent. So as you can see, following the glucopides, which was given and he was about 20 micromolar, he went down to about 0.7 micromolar within a matter of hours. We then followed his methotrexate over time, and as you can see, it stayed low. And then we've seen this a number of times with the patients. You get a bump back as the, as the drug starts to come out of the, out of the tissues. Um, this is his creatinine, because of course we had our friends, nephrologists and close by who were helping us. His creatinine goes from 1.01, initially it was about 2, peaked at about 4.5, fortunately oliguric renal failure rather than anuric, and it stabilized and gradually came down. His platelet count went to about 50,000, his white count went down to about 1,000. He developed some mucositis, which was relatively mild, grade one or grade two in, this, in the criteria. And the good news was he survived. He went home and was very grateful that things had gone in the right direction, though he was somewhat, shall I say, frustrated and annoyed that he had to stay in hospital for such a long time. So the good news here is the use of glucopidase, uh, its efficacy, and, of course, in this situation, just to be an awareness of the cost, but the fact that the guy had to stay in for some time also added to the total institutional uh, cost of, of dealing with the patient. This is just to show you that in the biggest series that I could find, which is about 100 patients, predominantly children having high-dose methotrexate, who were treated with glucopidase, this was out of the NCI, um, you can see these are the concentrations in, the, in these children. Uh, this is a population of about 100 patients. And giving glucopides, massive drop. And then there is this rebound that occurs a couple of days later uh, in, in the mesotrexate concentrations. 
In this patient population, and it's just over 100 patients, there were 12 patients who died. Uh, and about eight of them, it was the uh, judgment was that the patient was actually died from toxicity from methotrexate. So our, our uh, course of the patient is really consistent from the point of view of measuring plasma methotrexate concentrations over time. So if you think about what are the causes in a patient where you get elevated methotrexate that's not cleared uh, promptly? Well, the first thing that jumps to mind because of the pharmacology of the drug is that with 80 to 90% normally being cleared with a kidney, you've got renal dysfunction. And this gentleman sort of got into that problem because his creatinine went from about just, just above one to about mid fours. Um, occasionally, you get problems with third spacing. That is, you actually get a fluid collection either in the pleura or in, in the abdomen with the CITES, and the, and the drug sits in that, that particular uh, uh, compartment and, and stays there and then leaks out in the latter phase. And then the other issue is drug-drug interactions, as I alluded to. And in this patient's case, the aspirin was stopped. He was not on any other drugs that seemed to interact. But I thought it would be fun to sort of pause Another multiple choice question. Now, this multiple choice question is specifically aimed at people who are thinking of changing their careers to become clinical pharmacologists because the demography of our section is aging and we need some new members. So this is for you guys, okay? So if you get this right, you're a possible candidate for a new appointment going forward. Okay, so which drugs reduce methotrexate clearance? We have esomeprazole. Remember, if you walk down the mall in this hospital, you get a whiff of Nexium. <laughs> so all you've got to do, all right? And it's still... I think sort of confuses me why we currently are still using isomeprazole rather than another drug. Probenicid is a possibility, ribeprazole is a possibility, and we're going to not have a very well-constructed multiple choice here because of what I want the point. Is it A, B, and D? And I'll give you the other options. Naproxen, cyclosporine, is it C, E, and F only? Pepicillin taser back down, or is it A, B, C, D, and E, and F? I mean, all of them. So, let's have the old fashioned show of hands. Who thinks it's just A? Is it A, B, D, C, E, F? Is it B, C, D, E, or F? What's the real answer? Anybody? Hi. Hi. Why? Naproxen, cyclosporine, and probenicid all affect renal excretion. Correct. So that could be CEF. So, except is D. Oh, true. Good point. <laughs> I missed that. So the answer is that. And so William is, William is going to be uh, offered a candidacy as a clinical pharmacologist in his next life. I'm not sure if that fixes your aging problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tim, for, com for comments like that, Tim, you get to be offered it as well. <laughs> but you're right. But, we, but William's going to bring a special potion that is anti-aging with him. All right. So where I was going with this is there are a number of drugs that compromise both the renal clearance and the hepatic clearance. And the newest guys on the block, probenicid is well known, NSAIDs are well known, uh, piperacillin and, and penicillins go through the same transporters, but perhaps the ones that are most 
recent is the PPIs cause problems with methotrexate, all of them, including omeprazole. Okay, so this guy, he was not on any drugs that we thought were compromising excretion. He's a, he's a really big chap. I mean, you know, 287 plus pounds. Even the Welsh get worried about that. <laughs> So is his, morph is his morphometry, is that playing a role? And the answer is, of the literature that's out there, and it's pretty sparse, there's only a couple of reported cases, that suggest that in people who are overweight and, and shall I say, carrying too much adipose tissue, the volume of distribution and the clearance of methotrexate is, is essentially normal. If anything, it's, it's slightly uh, increased. So we can't nail it to his BS, BSA or BMI. So going back to where we were with his, our first, so this is where we'd like to be. These concentrations are high. What else could it be? And I'd like to suggest to you that it's in his genetics. So what's the evidence for this? So the best evidence is the St. Jude's group, as you predict, who do a lot of treatment of leukemias in children. And they actually did some preliminary studies in their kids using high, uh, receiving high-dose methotrexate. And they showed that a particular variant in this, remember we talked about the solute carriers? This particular solute carrier, CLO1B1, and the variant therein actually was linked to clearance of methotrexate. And certain polymorphisms had reduced clearance of methotrexate. So what they did is they went outside of their domain of patient population, and they looked at adults getting high-dose methotrexate in two, in two uh, cooperative groups. Uh, one was the, the uh, COG group, and the other one, I think, was, this, was what used to be the CLGB group. And this is what they call a replication set. So they get a finding in a small population that's very, very uh, constrained. They've got to go out now and look at a replication set in a broader population. Remember, they also did it in kids. So they're looking at adults now. And this is the adult population that they studied. They, they initially had about 18, 1,900 patients, about 1,600 eligible. They excluded 75 because of abnormalities. 54, they didn't have enough concentrations. And they ended up with about 1,200 patients where they had concentrations of methotrexate and they had DNA to look at genome uh, sequencing. And what they showed to, in a nutshell was it showed that certain proteins and variants of these solute carriers were highly correlated to methotrexate clearance. And the suggestion, therefore, is that in, in our case, maybe our patient had a variant of his solute carrier SLCBO1 that actually compromised the way that he got rid of his methotrexate. I actually talked to the St. Jude's people with the hope that they might be able to actually genotype our patient because unfortunately, as it stands now, we're not able to do this type of GWAS analysis uh, locally. And they were reticent to do it because they're not a clinically approved lab. It's a research lab they do it at, which is a shame because it would have been nice to have the genetic information. Um, what they also showed in the paper was they showed that the SLCO1B1 is linked to other SLCO3, and it's the sort of combination 
of protein polymorphisms that seems to be most potent or most related to changes in methotrexate clearance. And this is a, a haplo view from the Broad Institute. And the black lines, if you like, is where you get a strong association between two proteins having variants that can produce the effect, the phenotype that you're looking for. So why is this important? Why might this fit our paradigm? And what I want to show you is this is our friend SLCO1B1. And it's linked to these other characters in the membrane. And they're all hepatic influx transporters, transporting methotrexate into the liver. And maybe variance in that particular realm is how we ended up with, in this gentleman's case, a significant change in, in, in levels early on. But later on, I'm sure his renal dysfunction played a role as well. Wow. Yeah. Quick question. Sure. Do you know how common that polymorphism is? So, I mean, in kids, it's about 3% of their population. I don't know the data for the adult population, but they, they, they didn't find just one polymorphism. They found a number of SLCO1B1 SNPs that seem to be related. And they talk about it producing something like the variability of about 10 to 30%. So it's pretty common. But in kids, it was pretty low. OK. The good news is, as I mentioned, that our patient was in hospital for about two weeks. He became a little bit oliguric. His creatinine and his urine output returned almost to baseline. He had some GI problems with diarrhea and leukocytes. He had bone marrow problems. And the good news was he went home and is in outpatient follow-up. So the question I'm posing to myself here and to you guys is, is there some big overarching explanation for this whole event? We can't really tie in his weight and his size. Initially, his kidney function was fine. We got rid of drugs that appear to compromise the ability of the body to excrete methotrexate. Maybe he has a genetic predisposition to not being able to take it into the liver and therefore retain more in the blood. But what I would also suggest to you is, what transporter do you think messes with the statins? Which of these SLC transporters has been related to statin rhabdomyolysis? SLCO1OB1. The same transporter is transporting statins and methotrexate. And I don't know, because there's no literature on it. Does Resuva statin that this guy was on compete with methotrexate in a particular genetic variant of that protein? I don't know. It's a hypothesis. I can't prove it. There's no literature on this. But it does seem coincidental that he's on a drug that's transported by the same protein and there's a variant in that protein that seems to be related to methotrexate clearance. It's a hypothesis. It's not, I'm not selling that to you, but it's one potential hypothesis that we missed an undetermined drug-drug interaction, or an undefined, rather, drug-drug interaction. So that's my first case. Um, do we, John, do you want to take questions on this one first? No, let's keep going. You want to keep going? OK, let's keep going. Go to the second case. So the second case is a, an, a lady in her 70s. Um, 
And she first presented to our neuro-oncology colleagues in early, uh, in mid-2005. She had headaches, confusion, incontinence, and she had a frontal lobe mass, which turned out to be a CD20 positive lymphoma. Uh, she was treated on uh, a, very, a number of uh, therapeutic trials uh, with combination chemotherapy, including rituximab, and did really very, very well, tolerated the therapy very well, and was really in, in remission until earlier last year when she presented with confusion, ataxia, and some apraxia, and there seemed to be a relapse of her tumor. Um, there was a mass in her left basal ganglia. There were some lymphoma cells in her CSF. Um, History-wise, hypertension and some lipid problems, these were the drugs that she was on. And Due to my incompetence with EDH, I have to admit that I went and stole what her MRI might look like, um, and I drew in her mass because I couldn't get it. <laughs> and even with my dearly beloved partner, who is expert in these things, who told me I'm not dealing with this, um, I was unable to get and the, her actual MRI out of EDH, and that's my problem. Maybe, it's, maybe it just shows that the security in EDH is pretty good. But where I'm going with this is this was her MRI, and the MRI that was done suggested really just that this, there was nothing new going on. This was her pre-treatment one, and this was what it looked like. So she comes in, and she has rituximab, methotrexate, vincristine procarbazine with intracecal methotrexate. She goes through two cycles in early 2004. She tolerated them very well. The third cycle in March, she was a little bit slow clearing her methotrexate. It took a, little, a few days longer than, than when, uh, we would normally like it to be. Normally at 48 hours, as you recall, we want it to be low one micromolar. And she developed a, a sort of minor transaminitis, um, no more than 100 or so, uh, a little bit of a transaminitis. Then in... About 10 days after the course, she's admitted to an outside hospital with altered mental status. She's confused. Uh, she's not at all orientated. Um, the initial diagnosis was uh, maybe an influenza infection with a UTI. Uh, she was seen by our, and transferred to this institution where she was looked after by our neuro-oncology teams. And I love this term, uh, which I did take from EDH. She was on examination. She had hypoactive delirium. Um, I, I must admit, I, I'm not familiar with that one, but I guess it's just she's, they're lying there and delirious. Um, she's not orientated in, in time, person, or place, but really and truly there are no focal signs. There's nothing specific. And all tests that were done, looking for infections, looking for causes, uh, and she did have a little UTI, really and truly didn't pan out anything a viral or a CSF viral, a central nervous system viral infection. EEG just showed a diffuse slowing. Toxic encephalopathy was a possibility, no epileptiform features. And the MRI, the second MRI that was done, um, was reported as consistent with a toxic encephalopathy. And for those who are, like me, not very uh, familiar with the terminology, apparently on the T2 images and the DWI images, you get uh, symmetrical abnormalities uh, in the white matter of the intensity which spares the subcortical areas, and the U-fibers in particular. So I'm told, Dr. Fedor. Um, the bottom line is it was consistent with a toxic encephalopathy. 
So the question is, why and what? Um, she was given thiamine because of the history of uh, perhaps alcohol excess. A repeat uh, and careful uh, repeat EEG really didn't, sh didn't help divine any new changing processes. And the issue was, was this methotrexate leukoencephalopathy? Because she'd had methotrexate and she'd had intrathecal methotrexate. And what could we do about this? Um, well, in, in uh, many cases, it's a matter of sitting it out and waiting and watching, and it does improve slowly. But in the pediatric literature, uh, initially reported in 2002, there's a small case series of about five, patient, five children who had significant neurotoxicity from methotrexate treated with dextromethorphan. Um, and then a review more recently that talks about 18 patients. And the, the presentation is variable. It can be just a confusional state, or it can be a confusional state with apparent focal signs of hemiplegia and aphasia. And in fact, Dr. Benson had a patient, Benson had a patient about three years ago, a guy with ALL who was intubated and on the, on the intensive care, who had a complete hemiplegia and was aphasic and actually had this diagnosis. So what we determined to do in collaboration with, with our neuro-oncologist was put this lady on some dextromethorphan. Um, and the question you're asking yourself is, what? Dextromethorphan cough syrup? What's going on here? I mean, give me a break. So, as you recall from our diagrams, we know that dihydrofolate reductase, if it's inhibited, can change both purine and pyrimidine synthesis, but it also affects homocysteine and it also affects adenosine. And the proposed etiology and pathophysiology of this neuropathic process, it's a totally, it's not pinned down, but in the first, sorry, in the first series, in this five-patient series, they actually measured CSF homocysteine, and they found that the CSF homocysteine was markedly elevated in all of the patients. Um, and it looks, therefore, that if you like, the major culprit, potentially, is homocysteine accumulation, and homocysteine can give rise to N-acetyl aspartate as a metabolite that actually is an agonist at the NMDA receptor. So now we start to think, ah, oh, dextromethorphan NMDA receptors. Dextromethorphan is an NMDA receptor antagonist, and particularly its metabolite, dextromethorphan. So we have some, I feel like, some rationale for moving forward with this particular approach. So we started the lady on dextromethorphan, 60 milligrams twice a day. And over a period of a couple of days, she got much better. Although Dr. Fadul assures me she can't remember much of her time in hospital. Um, what she does, she came back to see the clinic uh, physicians, and she thought that the people in her skilled nursing facility were drug dealers and trying to set up drug deals. And she also thought that her stools were being collected and sold. And the question was, there were referrals and consultation. Did she need an antipsychotic? Um, and I thought in, in discussions with, with, with Camillo that maybe the only thing we should do is just take her, take her off her dextromethorphan because dextromethorphan has been shown to produce psychosis in a small number of patients. So we did that, and the good news was she got better. The bad news is that she can't remember anything about the stools, but she still thinks that there's some big drug deal going on in her skilled nursing facility. 
So, where's this going from the point of view of individualization of therapy? So here's dextromethorphan. It's metabolized to dextromethorphan. And in fact, this guy is about 100 times more potent than dextromethorphan as an NMDA antagonist. And um, it's likely, therefore, that the drug therapy, both in the literature, in the pediatric literature, and in this patient, if it was beneficial, it was because these, this compound was formed and was an NMDA antagonist, blocking the effect of homocysteine metabolites as an NMDA agonist, producing that confusional state. So from the point of view of pharmacogenetics, I know that many of you will be aware that dextromethorphan is metabolized by CYP2D6. And everybody knows, anybody who's a clinical pharmacologist should know, and those prospective clinical pharmacologists I know do know, um, would say, well, you know, maybe there's some variation in metabolism, and there is indeed. There's a group of people who have rapid metabolizers on CYP2D6, and they'll make more of this particular metabolite than other people. And in a, in a Caucasian population, this runs somewhere between 2 and 6%. And that's from data in-house, because we actually did some CYP2D6 genotyping uh, in the institution of about 450 patients uh, with Greg Songalis. So the possibility is that she got better with the production of a lot of this stuff, but it went over the top because she became psychotic as well. So those are the two cases. One is a methotrexate pharmacokinetic toxicity with pharmacodynamic effects treated with this new enzyme. And the second one is methotrexate neurotoxicity, uh, where in fact we use an NMDA antagonist to ameliorate, or shall I say, pro maybe produce a change in the time frame which the patient improves. So I've impl implicated genetics as maybe playing a role in both of these cases. But what I wanted to do was touch on where is the academic world in individualizing therapies and using the proliferation of genetic information that's coming down the pipe? Well, here we have what I would call our cousin institution um, in Rochester. And they have a center for individualized medicine. And what they've done is they actually collect DNA from all the patients who are inpatients and even their outpatients, and they type it for certain genes involved in drug metabolism and drug targeting, and that goes into the medical record. And then there are specific alerts in the medical record advising physicians about drug dose choice, etc. Particularly, examples would be the use of codeine, the use of SSRIs and tricyclics, the use of tramadol, uh, the use of warfarin. So this is happening routinely at Mayo. So that's one institution that's sort of fairly well respected. And here we have Vanderbilt, and I'm sorry this doesn't show up so well, I apologize. Um, I don't know why, but that's life. Um, Vanderbilt have a similar thing for 10,000 patients. They, they take DNA from all their patients. It's FDA approved, uh, sorry, it's a, a, a IRB approved process, and they, the patient signs into it. And they then genotype for specific variants of drug metabolizing enzymes and drug target enzymes. And they hope that that incorporation of that information into the medical record will bring about individualized prescribing that's aided, and I say aided, by the genotype. 
So that's, that's Vanderbilt. They haven't reported. They have a thing called, if you want to go look it up, it's called the PREDICT program. And they have a, a huge website talking about what drug, drugs they do and what genes they look at. The other one is a place up in Chicago where they also have a smaller study going. And they're going to do 12, 000, uh, sorry, 1,200 patients. It's called the 1,200 study. And they're going to genotype. And they're going to put the information in. And they're genotyping specifically, as I say, for either variants in drug metabolizing enzymes or drug target enzymes. And they're hoping that information in the record will allow the physicians to uh, be more judicious and more uh, critical of their thinking around therapeutics. So we're talking about genetic information. And I thought it was helpful to think about, well, what if we do the whole genome, if we take somebody's DNA and we, we sequence the whole genome and we get that information and it's with the right tools, it allows us to think about how does the genetic information help us think about therapeutics. Going forward, or historically, this is the cost of doing a whole genome. Over, and we're down now to probably just about $1,000 for the whole genome. And some, some of the machines that are available will do about six to eight genomes a day. So this is becoming much more affordable. It's becoming something that the patients are aware of. Uh, some of you may have had patients turn up with their 23andMe printouts, which have now been sort of, uh, shall I say, stopped by the FDA. But this information is coming our way, and it's an information highway that we're going to have to deal with. And it's not so much the cost. It's more the resources to put in place appropriate tools data interpretation issues, and education of our providers and education of our healthcare system. So what's happening here? We have a lot of people looking at population issues. Dr. Amos, Chris Amos, heads the Center for Genomic Medicine. Dr. Sungaris is the director of the Genomic Translational Lab. And Dr. Tomlinson and Sanchez run the NCC genome. These guys currently are, are pretty focused on looking at tumor variants but they're not, they, it isn't that they're not focused, it's not quite so much of a focus on variants of, of germline DNA. Jason Moore looks at a lot of population genomics, and we can actually do um, drug genotyping for certain uh, uh, proteins in Dr. Songalis's lab. We can do 2D6, 2C9, 2C19, and VCOR, and TPMT, which is thiopurine-methyltransferase. So my thought was that you know, while it would be great for us to be right on the cutting edge, I think we're a little bit off the cutting edge right now as regards individualized pharmacogenetic typing uh, at this institution. And maybe it's because of the tension between individualized therapy versus population health. Okay, so in summary then, I think what I've described to you is the use of a, a, a novel compound that is expensive, but in the case that we did, I think we avoided a potentially fatal consequence of methotrexate uh, administration. And it was precision therapeutics because that enzyme cleaved that drug right on that point of the CONH bond. Um, I hope I've sort of stimulated your thought processes to suggest that maybe the genetics of these transporters, if we know them prospectively, will help us think about uh, modifying or thinking about the dosing we, we do, that we give to patients. 
I think the leukoencephalopathic case with an NMDA antagonist is pretty novel in adults. I've not seen anything else in the literature. Actually, we have two cases here now. Uh, another case was about three or four years ago, as I said, a young man who was in his 20s with ALL, and the use of dextromethorphan. And then finally, I don't want to give you the impression that pharmacogenetics holds it all. I think you have to combine it carefully with your clinical acumen, your clinical skills, and the clinical knowledge that you bring to the table. So I think at that point I'm ready to wrap up. But I thought I'd give you some diversity, and I would ask you to I'd thank you, uh, which is, this is the Welsh, and I'll translate it afterwards. Which basically means, Thank you for listening to my story about these two patients. And now it's time for questions, and I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Uh, that was, uh, once again, another brilliant uh, performance. Um, uh, I want to start off the questions uh, by uh, asking you, since you live really on the cutting edge of novel agents, all of which, the ones that are going to be successful, all of which are going to be expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet you see also the, the value added to individuals. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about this conundrum of you know, novel agents, high prices, oh my god, and yet it makes such a difference to people? So, um I think we're, what the point you're, you're sort of moving towards, John, is that as, as we start to think about new compounds that do cost something in the region of $10,000 a month, uh, $120,000, how do we develop the studies that allow us to make the best use of those agents in the patients who are going to respond well or best and subsequently also have least toxicity. And I think understanding the genetics is one part at the level of the germline genetics, but also understanding the pathophysiology of the disease and also the genetics of the disease. So doing that biomarkers of response and toxicity in those studies is going to help us hone down the patient population that are really going to benefit going forward. And therefore, hopefully, from the systematic point of view, take the massive cost from treating a 1,000 patients, only of whom maybe 200 will really benefit and 200 will get toxicity. Maybe we can actually focus on the patients who are the 200 will really benefit and will get toxicity going forward. Uh, sure. Can you comment about how effectively you think that we are teaching medical students? handle the kind of material you presented today, and which direction are we going? Are we giving them the background to handle what is obviously going to be essential for the very, very best of So I, I think I can speak locally. Um, I'm not so sure I can speak more broadly. We certainly have components of the course that touch on some of these aspects around drugs and genetics. We don't yet have the systems in place to help either our current providers or our future providers utilize that information optimally. So I think the big lesion is not that we're not trying to educate, but I think we're not combining it with systems changes to allow those future 
providers to actually utilize this information going forward. There seems to be a reticence throughout healthcare as a system to take up this type of information and use it to the best. And I think part of that is driven by the current cost consciousness. But if you look at pharmacoeconomic analyses of using a drug that costs 200,000 a year rather than not using it and using another drug, I think those arguments will sort of go away. And what we need to do is we need to talk about this stuff regularly. We need to teach it both in, the, in our second year and in our, in reinforce it on the wards. But we need to add in the systems to help people take that information and use it promptly. So I think we've got a way to go is the bottom line. Mark? So I think these studies are pretty hard to do, but is, is there any evidence in a sort of statistically rigorous way that this genetic approach is helpful in any particular so, so the two biggest studies that have been published in the literature over the last year are to do with warfarin. As you guys know, there's about 2 million patients on warfarin in the U.S. right now. And you also know that the biggest toxicity is about 10% of patients on warfarin will get a major bleed. And there were, there's an NIH study uh, that was done in the U.S. and there's a European study that looks at so-called genetic-based dosing versus the algorithmic-based dosing. And the two studies came out with totally different answers. Uh, the European study, which was slightly smaller than the US study, showed that there was a benefit in time to therapeutic warfarin uh, effect and a reduction in hemorrhagic events. The US study really showed that, yes, maybe there was a benefit to getting faster, but no reduction in hemorrhagic events. And what also it showed which was interesting, is that in that population, the algorithm for African-Americans seemed not to work so well as the empiric algorithm, i.e. the African-Americans had more bleeds. And maybe that was how the data in that study came out as really no benefit. I don't know. So that, those are the biggest studies that are out there. There are smaller studies looking at antidepressant use, smaller studies looking at um, tamoxifen use, where tamoxifen is activated. There's a huge, shall I say, dichotomy of views around should you do genotyping for tamoxifen because CYP2D6 activates tamoxifen to endoxifen. Endoxifen is the active uh, estrogen antagonist. And if you don't make that stuff, you're not going to get the benefit from tamoxifen. Massive arguments in the, in, the, in the oncology community about the benefit of doing that. So the bottom line is I think it's currently a little bit up for grabs. But the, this, this stuff is coming down, it's coming down the pipe. And what we've got to do is study it more and particularly do pharmacoeconomic analyses. With that has not been done routinely. What is the pharmacoeconomic analysis of doing it versus not doing it? And not just look at outcomes from the point of view of health outcomes, but outcomes from the point of view of dollars going forward. It's like any form of screening, you have to show benefit yeah. before you put money into it. Right. And that's right. the circular argument. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Lionel. That was entertaining and interesting. Um, so I'm curious if you know any more about the places like Mayo and Vanderbilt that have implemented this in a clinical setting, and whether, clinic whether they're um, make forcing clinicians into certain pathways, whether clinicians are taking the information and using it, mm -hmm. whether anybody's publishing the data. So, so current, currently all I know is, um, shall I say, collegiate 
um, rumor. That is, people working there telling me what's going on. They're, as far as I know, they haven't published any information from what the effects are doing this yet. But the talk I get from remembering that Mayo has a very strong clinical pharmacology unit and Vanderbilt has a very strong clinical pharmacology unit as well, the, the, the sort of word on the street is, A, the uptick is good because both by the patients and by the physicians because the tools to interpret it are there. That's the first thing. The second thing is, the sense is it is making a difference, uh, but have I seen the published data for that? And that is outcome difference and cost differences. Because the cost of doing some of these things, if you do genotyping for, for a gene like CYP2D6, even here it costs you less than a couple of hundred dollars now. So, you know, uh, we haven't seen the data from these prospective uh, interventions that people are doing yet, and we're waiting for that information to come up. Camilo, and then uh, William, and then we'll stop. More of a practical issue with respect to reducing the DDH. And in urate methotrexate, and there are like three warnings that come up with respect to drug drug interaction. And so we override them sometimes because we think that we know what we're doing. And so the question is are, are these vetted by clinical pharmacology? So, 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 right. So, the, 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 the vetting of those types of processes are really with the database that EDH is linked to, and I think it's linked to first database. Um, and they have a, a group of experts who should be aware vetting those, those, that, those particular drug drug interactions. It would probably take me the amount of time I have left on this earth uh, to go on and try to vet all the stuff that's in there because of the drug drug interactions that are there. They're massive. So you need a team of people to do it. But my understanding is that where they get the information from is vetted by an expert panel that, that drives those alerts. Now, everybody, I think, senses that maybe we're getting alert overload. Um, and that's the, that's the key issue, is to try to prioritize those alerts so that it doesn't become excessive and you become tolerant to it going forward. But we, we don't have infant, uh, input into that routinely just because of the volume, Camillo. It's, it's massive. William, So, Maya, uh, we've gotten four questions about systems and EDH and teaching medical students. I'd like to ask a pharmacology question. Well, I was hoping you would because we're looking for you. We're on the new career options. Well, yeah, that too. So, so my question is, if you could go back to the methotrexate metabolism slide, yep. halfway slide, yep. one of the questions I've always had, and I still don't understand, is why you just can't shove in boatloads of folinic acid and block the effects of methotrexate toxicity? Oh, that's easy. So, <laughs> so you want to talk about this guy here? Is so, downstream yeah, but yeah, but it is, it is downstream. That's that's the issue. So, but what, what what happens is that it's it's the target. The primary target is here, but there are subsequent secondary targets: thymidylate synthase and these other enzymes in the in, in in basically in purine metabolism. So it's not just DHFR, but folinic acid is over here. You're right. So what proportion is DHFR? What proportion does folinic acid reverse or have it? It, it does. I mean, it, it, the, we, the patient we had, we gave him a lot of folinic acid. There's no question about that. It wasn't just getting. But the issue is that the, the, the methotrexate has already irreversibly harmed this guy. And these metabolites are targeting these other ones. And those metabolites are downstream of DHFR or yes. they're 
Yeah, these, these are, because they look, they're affecting the, the purine pathway and they're affecting thermodynamic synthase, which is, which is, which is thermodynamic synthase is beyond phenylic acid, okay? Yeah. So although you try to help it out, you don't totally abrogate it. Does that help? Yep. So we're going to get you in some way. I'll be surprised <laughs> if there aren't more applications to uh, uh, fellowship. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.